Dougie, are we good? Just waiting on Brian and Kara. I see Kara. I think Kara's on. Kara is here. Kara, Kara, we shot you an invite. She's in the chat. You should be able to designate her as a speaker. Yeah, we just both sent her an invite, so. Waiting. Let me just quote tweet this and drive some people in, and then we'll get started. You're still having some issues, I guess. And then who was the last one, Dougie? Brian Quintez. Well, we'll give him a minute. Should I start with the usual pump-up music, Doug? Hit All it. right, let's go. is reevaluating all of his life decisions that have led up to this moment. Kristen knows a drill. That was without question the best start <laughs> to a Twitter spaces I have ever been a part of, full stop. Oh, well, much more of that coming up in a couple weeks. We got all kinds of entrance teams going on. Kristen, welcome back. Tamika, thanks for joining Glad us. Glad to be here. Yes, absolutely. And uh, Kara, we're going we're gonna to try to get you up here. Uh, as, uh, as soon as you're able, and then if Brian joins, uh, great, uh, and, and we'll pull him up somewhere midway through. He might be calling in from his Anon account. That's my only explanation, Doug. So just uh, keep uh, keep an eye out for any rare Pepe's in the chat that uh, look a little suspicious. But we're going to go. We have plenty to talk about just with um, uh, with Kristen and uh, Tamika. Both of those uh, illustrious uh, speakers uh, are going to be on uh, speaking of day one at Mainnet in a couple weeks on all things policy, we've got uh, a pretty phenomenal lineup coming up. 200 plus speakers um, and a bunch of blue chip names from the industry and a, a lot of the folks that are in the weeds down at not only in DC, but internationally as well. So thank you to Kristen and her team for helping with some of that programming and, and getting some of those details together. Uh, and then uh, Tomika and everyone else for uh, joining us today is a little bit of a teaser. So uh, I don't want to call this a dry run because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of stuff that evolves even in the next couple of weeks. But uh, Kristen, Tamika, why don't we just start with current lay of the land. Congress is back in session. Um, well, at least part of Congress. And um, you know, after Labor Day weekend, uh, we, we got nine weeks until the midterms. What are we realistically looking out for right now um, when it comes to U.S. crypto policy going into the next nine weeks before we potentially have a change in control in the house um, or not, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but, um, but what, what, what is on your mind? Is there anything that we should be 
thinking about as, as potential legislation that will get pushed through between now and the end of the year. Yeah, Ryan, well, great, uh, very appropriate question and uh, excited to talk about it today. Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, back to school time here in Washington, right? Everyone's done with their summer vacations. Congress is back for the next month or so, um, and there are several hearings on the calendar and bills that are being worked on. So um, definitely the potential for a lot of action between now and the end of the year. So I think just to maybe kind of frame everything that's going on, and we can go deeper on individual ones, um, you know, we've got two kind of major legislative issues going on right now. One on spot market regulation. There's going to be a hearing in the Senate Agriculture Committee this week. Uh, we've got another um, legislative effort going on around stable coins. There's been ongoing discussions between the chair and ranking member of House Financial Services and Treasury Department. And so seeing if those lead to some sort of deal, uh, we should know in the next couple of weeks. So definitely a lot going on in Congress. Um, but we also have a lot going on with the federal agencies. Many of the executive order reports from Biden's executive order that was put out this spring are due this fall. And so we're going to see a lot of new information coming out of the government on that front. Um, and then the other thing to keep aware of right now is this, this is the, the end of the fiscal year is September 30th. So we've, this is the time when federal agencies who are looking to bring enforcement actions uh, this is the time that, that they want to get those, those um, actions, enforcement actions announced because it will allow them to seek more resources for the agency next year. So this could be a pretty, pretty big month from that perspective as well. Kristen gave a great overview. I'll add to that. I tend to look at this at three different levels. So you have right now policy deliberations that are underway, you have political deliberations that are underway, and then increasingly there's an important geopolitical conversation that's driving uh, a lot of these discussions as well. Uh, at a policy level, you know, Kristen mentioned both the legislative efforts and the executive order process that uh, continues to roll forward. Uh, you will see over the next few weeks many of the agencies that were tasked with developing reports as part of March's White House executive order, starting to re uh, report back. And that input will all feed into a White House-driven policymaking process that'll probably start to become more public uh, in October. Beyond that, uh, you're seeing a great deal of political activity around Web3 and crypto. And it's critical for folks to recognize that ultimately politics is what drives policy and policy then of course goes on to shape regulation. Uh, and so the politics, the conversations that are playing out in town hall meetings and in debates around the country in congressional and Senate races are making a big impact. And what we are finding is that in many instances, folks are coming uh, from a wide array of different ideological viewpoints and based on the conversations they're having with their constituents, concluding that we need to do a better job of shaping an enabling environment for regulation and policy in the United States. The last dimension of this uh, that I would touch on is what's happening geopolitically, especially between the US and China. The Economist is just out with a big article about the ECNY, China's digital currency, and increasingly there's a realization among policymakers that the US is going to have to step up pretty quickly if we don't want to be left behind in terms of providing next generation solutions, the digital infrastructure and rails that will power the global economy going forward. Uh, and so that's one additional component uh, that should be weighed pretty heavily as we look at how policy uh, discussions are going to unfold over the, the course of this year and early next. One of the things that I think comes up um, quite a bit in conversations that I have is, is just the practical reality of where we are at this point in time and the ideal reality, you know, the, the, the utopian approach, uh, this light touch approach that, that you know, people want policymakers to have with respect to crypto. Um, and you both have a unique vantage point in terms of understanding the urgency that policymakers are coming at some of these problems uh, with at, at this point, particularly after some of the Q2 
issues that we had, um, liquidations, bankruptcies, you know, did many consumer protection issues kind of came to the fore. Where do you think are the very obvious points that um, regulators are, are, and, and policymakers are going to come in and, and be very assertive? Um, and what should the industry be kind of mentally prepared for um, when it comes to the give uh, on, on regulation? So we're not going to get everything that we want, but how do you kind of walk this balance beam of you know, being pragmatic about the need for crypto to fit into a policy framework and also um, you know, try to do this in a way that is as minimally damaging as possible um, so you don't have a ton of things like the tornado cash um, you know, blanket ban with OFAC that you know, is probably going to lead to some court challenges um, and, and all of its you know, ripple effects that have been um, surfaced over the last couple of weeks with respect to third parties shutting down services or, or, or otherwise you know, potentially moving away from anything that even that contract. So I'd say uh, as we look at this right now, there are uh, a few key considerations. The first is when it comes to matters of litigation uh, and you know here the the tornado cash uh, OFAC uh, sanctions are you know potentially top of the list. It's important to ground our arguments in legal reality. I know there has been a great deal of uh, concern and interest in potential First Amendment objections uh, to what we saw OFAC do with Tornado Cash. We have consulted with some of the top First Amendment scholars in the country, and, and these are folks who are free speech maximalists. If there were a First Amendment argument, they would try to find a way to uh, incorporate it uh, into a response. The universal response that we are getting from very serious legal scholars is there isn't a serious First Amendment case uh, against OFAC on uh, what they've done with Tornado Cash. There may be some important Fourth Amendment object uh, objections that could be raised. Uh, and so that's something we need to look at a little bit more carefully when it comes to unreasonable search and seizure and takings. Those are arguments that could potentially carry some water. But it's important that we ensure as a community that we are grounding our reactions in uh, well-informed, well-reasoned uh, legal doctrines and, and theories. Uh, and that hasn't always been the case to date. The next thing that I would touch on is stable coins. We saw particularly as a consequence of Terra and Luna, a lot of lawmakers step up and recognize that this is an area where they are almost certainly going to have to create some guardrails. Uh, and so I think it's going to be critical to guide that process in a way that hopefully will facilitate far-ranging private sector innovation while recognizing that there are some potential systemic uh, implications for these technologies and they're going to have to evolve in a way uh, that is responsible. The last thing that I would flag, and, and this is uh, certainly going to be controversial, but I think it's also going to be essential uh, if we want to achieve population scale with these technologies, is longer term we're going to have to look hard at privacy-preserving digital identity and develop frameworks that will enable us to preserve privacy and enable us to have good uh, systems that respect rights. And that's why I and a lot of others are uh, interested in this space. But we're also going to have to bring some uh, solutions to the table when it comes to digital identity. If we fail to do that, we're going to find regulators taking a much more heavy-handed approach than is necessary. And I would just assume uh, that those of us who know and care about the ecosystem are the ones putting forward potential solutions here, rather than waiting for those solutions, quote unquote, to be imposed on us uh, by those that may not know as much or care as much uh, about the future of the ecosystem. Kristen, I want to get your thoughts here, and then we'll we'll introduce our other two speakers as well, um, who uh, who we were able to. Yeah, get. no, I I think there's consensus with both parties, uh, with both Congress and the administration that there's there's holes around stable coins, as Tamika was saying, and also with spot markets. You know, with most commodity spot markets, you don't have a federal regulator, but everyone feels like crypto is different and, and has sort of come to the consensus that we need to have some additional regulation in that space. I think 
I think that's all reasonable, and if it's done correctly, is going to be very good for the crypto ecosystem. Um, I do think, though, the biggest thing we have to watch out for is how DeFi gets into the fold, right? Because, you know, how you want to go about regulating, you know, Coinbase is very different than you would want to go about applying some regulation to Uniswap, right? They're just fundamentally different. The risks are different. Um, and um, But, you know, lawmakers, you know, they, they care less about the weeds than, than we do as the industry, right? Like what they're looking for is to be able to say, ah, yes, crypto, there were a bunch of bad lines had about that and now we have done something. And, you know, 99% of people reading the headlines aren't going to know the nuances. But, you know, I, I worry that, that DeFi both from the stablecoin perspective and from the spot market perspective may get caught up in ways that um, aren't productive. And so we're obviously working very hard to prevent that from happening. But I, th I think that's the biggest challenge and something that industry needs to be prepared to have more, more conversations about. Um, I do think though that, that I, and, and I've, I've said this a million times, but I'll say it again. I, I think the industry is ready for these conversations. Um, there are a lot of folks on the ground here in Washington that are having, doing a lot of education, that are doing a lot of thinking about solutions, that are building out relationships. Um, we're in a much better place um, as an industry than we were even just a year ago. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're prepared. We have, we have, you know, we can be a constructive partner in these discussions, but, but yeah, the, the proposals that are out there, even the ones that are being considered this week at the Senate Agriculture Committee, right? Like that, that's a major problem for DeFi. It's a major problem for trading firms. Um, you know, there's a lot of kinks that need to be worked through with that legislation. And so, you know, just because we see something that's at the CFTC doesn't necessarily mean that that's like something we can all live with. The, the devil is in the details and, and we're going to have a lot of work to do uh, when it comes to the details. Brian, I want to go to you next. Um, so thanks for joining us. Uh, and uh, yeah, my uh, my first uh, Twitter spaces, uh, I was very thrown off by the UX as well. So I think you and Carol were in the same same boat working at your desktop versus uh, calling in from your phone. Um, thanks, thanks, thanks for outing me that it's my first Twitter space. Right. But, uh, that's, <laughs> you that's know what? I, this, this is not my first think, Twitter space, think, but it wouldn't work for me anyway. That, that says everything about how high quality, the speaker lineup is going to be at mainnet that, uh, that people are doing their first Twitter spaces, just a preview and tease. Uh, exactly. All the, all the fire to go. expect in the main stage. So, um, so I'll go to you first and then Kara will, will, will uh, come back around, but, um, you know, you've, you've been on both sides here, um, currently advising A16Z and, and some other folks in the industry on how to engage with policymakers, but also have sat in the commissioner chair at the CFTC. Um, it, it it might be a little bit difficult for you to tell now on the outside, but I'm sure you know, just from some of your relationships, you can get a pretty good read. How would you, how would you categorize the urgency level now versus, you know, the, the couple last couple of years of, of your time at CFTC in terms of getting policy enacted and, 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 and having it be pretty comprehensive in terms of coverage um, within the U S regulatory sphere? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, I I, I kind of view uh, policy making uh, and regulatory rule writing as as being on an arc of momentum, and I think the momentum um, in in crypto has only grown from a use case perspective, from a market perspective, from an interest perspective, and so there, therefore, I think it's understandable that the interest in policy making and regulatory rule writing has also grown over time. And so I, I don't, I don't see anything that's diminished that I, I see that as, as substantially increased, um, over the last year, certainly over the last two to three years. Uh, and certainly since I was at the CFTC where it was starting to, you know, build to a point where, uh, I think, I think folks realized that, uh, something was going to happen at some point. Uh, now I think, um, it's probably fair to say that we think something is going to happen in the, in the near to medium term. Um, and, and so, you know, I guess I guess building off of what Kristen was saying around um, you know, how, how these things develop and how that momentum ends up being articulated in in policy, I, I think I think both she and Tamika are right that there is a specific concrete interest uh, in doing something in passing legislation around 
uh, around spot market authorities and around uh, stable coins themselves. Um, but once you start to get to specifics, that's where there's kind of a breakdown between uh, different ideologies or market participants and regulators or just different perspectives. And you, you, you normally expect that. When I was at the CFTC, there was a give and take at the commissioner level all the time um, between all the commissioners and the chair, regardless of what party they were affiliated with. So I, I think there's still an open question as to how are we going to see you know, that consensus evolve? I see the risks for that consensus evolving uh, either in response to a crisis, uh, I think of something, uh, and or if something was done very quickly, uh, where um, very specific um, and discrete requirements were articulated in statutory language that doesn't allow a regulator any flexibility. One of the things that I loved about the CFTC uh, when I was there and, and since leaving is how principles focused it is. It's a principles based regulator. So it, it establishes baselines that need to be met through its regulations and then usually allows uh, the registrants or the firms or the, the businesses a lot of flexibility to try to um, uh, meet, those, meet those requirements in the way that they feel is most suitable. That obviously gets impaired if there are you know, very specific, if not you know, draconian or you know, in, 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 in some instances, uh, inappropriate requirements that are put into a statute that an agency has no ability to work around. Uh, and that usually happens when it's a response to a, you know, a, a concrete, discrete crisis or when it's done very quickly. And I think some of the momentum that we're seeing on Capitol Hill around, you know, one piece of legislation I think is going to be discussed, you know, this week and next week and in the coming weeks, you know, we'll have to be careful about. Kara, um, thank you for joining us as well. Coinbase is a really interesting position right now uh, from, from a few different vantage points. Obviously, it's the, the biggest you know, U.S. Um, regulated, well, uh, the biggest intermediary, I guess, the, the biggest, I don't want to say crypto bank and, and get you in trouble, but the, you know, the, the, the institution, <laughs> the publicly traded you know, kind of behemoth in the industry uh, has you know, about you know, double digit percentage, depending on the asset of, of, of assets under custody between the different parts of the business. And on the one hand, you have this um, this opportunity, maybe, uh, for regulatory capture and um, and for Coinbase to be a little bit more um, willing to engage with policymakers because of the moat that it has, uh, given its size. On the other hand, you have kind of explicit uh, messages from Brian Armstrong himself on how he would think philosophically about. Uh, maintaining the censorship resistance of Ethereum. And, and this is you know, particularly in reference to a tweet around uh, the Tornado Cash saga and, and you know, whether Coinbase would um, try to blanket ban validators that, that interacted with the contract, for instance. Um, how do you, what, what is the sense at Coinbase for that organization's role in some of these conversations? Is it, this is a competitive um, advantage and an opportunity for us? Is, is it really about herding cats and, and trying to kind of unify different voices at the table? What What is um, the overarching goal when it comes to the next couple of quarters of engagement for Coinbase proper? Yeah, thank you for, thank you for that question, Ryan. I think that, you know, we, if you talk to Brian Armstrong back to when he founded this company in 2012, it has always been to be the most trusted, compliant, and safe. And I think one of those, a key part of that is actually engaging in the regulatory structure. And so I wouldn't say that our, while we've built up a policy team over the course of the last year, the, the goal has always been to engage directly with regulators. And we have done so, and we will continue to do so. We've been engaging with Congress. I've worked for Coinbase back, going back to 2016, and have been working with them in D.C. So we have a really long history here working with folks in Washington, D.C., I think where we actually, it, you talk about competitive advantage, we actually see the situation right now 
as, as not good for small companies, for innovators, for projects, for the crypto ecosystem, we think it's better to have a clear regulatory framework that actually enables rather than the fifth person that a small company has to hire being a regulatory lawyer could actually be another innovator, another builder. And, and they can comply with, you know, a handful of lawyers rather than like us, hundreds of lawyers, right? So we're actually trying to make sure that as we engage, we're thinking about um, where the regulators can come in and actually provide clarity. I think, you know, a, a year ago, we had a digital asset policy proposal that talked about one primary regulator, one, you know, one regulator for all digital assets. Your earlier question about what are we going to have to live with? I think the reality is we are going to have to live, live with a continued fractured system. And that's something we've had with traditional finance, you know, for as long as any of us can remember. And so I think what we're going to have to live with is this continued fractured system where you maybe have one regulator for, as Tamika mentioned, stable coins. You have a regulator for something that looks like a digital asset security. So that's under the SEC. You have something for commodities, which, you know, we think we don't list security on the Coinbase platform. So there's a gap. And as Kristen mentioned, this, this gap for what are these commodities. And, you know, you don't have somebody that's regulating necessarily the sale of grain, but you have somebody who's regulating the futures or a contract on that sale of grain. So crypto feels a little bit different, as Kristen also mentioned. And so what, is the, what are the parameters for this kind of new market and how do we create the rules for this as well as thinking about the existing rules and how those might need to be modified? That's super helpful. And, and uh, I love the, the range of perspectives that we have out of the four of you. I, I want to talk about um, one topic that always comes up for me and, and kind of being in the builder seats um, versus uh, being someone that wants to spend a lot of time in D.C., uh, quite honestly. I'm, I'm always interested in what are some of the common sense things that we can do without regulatory say-so that would help us um, either from a defensive standpoint, from an image standpoint, um, not in terms of organizing a self-regulatory body per se, but at least inching in the right direction. Um, are there easy wins and, and low-hanging fruit that the investors in the industry, the exchanges and custodians, um, the the developers uh, can keep in mind when they're building day to day, knowing that this is going to take, even in the most, uh, even in the fastest, rosiest view of, of the state of play for policy the next 18 months, it is going to take at least 12, 18 months for, for any type of legislative action to, um, to actually get passed and, 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 uh, to even empower regulators to make certain decisions. Where can we get a head start, right? Uh, and 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 where where should people be thinking about um, moving in this direction even before the the laws and rules themselves are written? And I'd open that for for the everybody in this group, just given the diversity of interests that you represent. A few quick thoughts uh, on this, Ryan. I think it's important for all of us to be honest about the fact that for most of the history of the industry, the primary focus among many builders, certainly not all builders, has uh, been frankly on staying out of trouble and avoiding prosecution. And there were a lot of good reasons mm -hmm. for that. So that was a very defensible approach uh, to, to how folks were uh, kind of working around a very ambiguous regulatory and, and policy environment. We are now at an inflection point, and I think we've heard this from uh, pretty much every one of the speakers uh, on today's panel, which is that we are now moving into a moment where we're going to actually start shaping new rules for these new things. We, we will have, uh, hopefully, a framework that is going to take some time, but it will be built, ideally, to accommodate uh, the realities of this technology, as opposed to simply uh, functioning as a 75-year-old you know, relic uh, of systems that were designed in the aftermath of the Great Depression. So that creates a, a big opportunity. And uh, I'd, I'd touch on you know, just two points, and uh, I'm sure that the other speakers will have more and better suggestions. The first is that the rules are going to follow the politics. Uh, and here again, there has, for a variety of reasons, I think, been reticence 
on the part of many actors in this space to engage in the political process. We are in a remarkably good spot in that this is not an issue that has been politicized. It may be the last issue in Washington uh, that has not been politicized. But you find strong advocates for the industry and the ecosystem on both sides of the political spectrum. And we need to do as much as we can right now to build political support for creating a, a good thoughtful regulatory framework around this technology going forward that will enable, to Kara's point, especially small builders and innovators and founders to do the work they need to do without legions and legions of regulatory lawyers uh, helping them along the way. Um, so that's point number one. Folks should engage in the political process. They should go to uh, the town halls that are going on right now, they should email and call their representatives and senators and let them know that this really matters. It really matters to the future of our economy. It really matters to ensuring that we have a thriving open society that can use technology in ways uh, that are not subject to the whims of a handful of oligarchic individuals. This is fundamentally important to the trajectory of our nation going forward, and we need our elected officials to pay attention and get it right. The second thing I would highlight goes back to something you said. This is a moment when the industry does need to start thinking about what are the rules and principles that we want to put in place as representative of best standards. We will need to have a vision for what constitutes good regulation and what constitutes responsible behavior. And th that vision is either going to happen to us or it's going to happen through us. Uh, so again, a big preference in my mind for having different actors across the ecosystem come together and outline what we think the rules of good behavior should look like in hopes that policymakers and regulators will embrace those rules as they craft uh, the legislative architecture around the industry going forward. So, Micah, um, I, uh, I definitely appreciate the first thing that you said of we've been in a, de a defensive posture for a while, and we heard this directly from teams early on at Masari when we were working on different disclosures frameworks that they said point blank, we would like to do this and our council has advised us not to do anything that would be overly commun uh, communicative with the rest of our community or we might look like a centralized entity and that might put us at greater risk of being perceived as a security. Um, and I think that's, that's understandable in both directions, uh, but it did hold back a lot of folks from trying to engage in good faith. And I do think it's one of the things that led to Commissioner Purse's safe harbor uh, that's now been through a couple of iterations. Unfortunately, that's gone basically nowhere. Um, and, and Brian, I, I'd like to hear your perspective on that. You know, not, not to sandbag a fellow regulator or anything, but just to, just to under, help, help us understand what goes through um, from a process standpoint, what, what it would take to get something like that sandbox off the ground or a safe harbor off the ground. Um, was this always kind of a pie in the sky idea that, that you know, one commissioner had and, and the industry kind of hoped for? Or is there a path to this without some type of legislative say so? Well, so, I mean, I think ultimately any, any proposal, you know, that, that's within a regulator needs to have the, the, the full support of the leadership of the, of the chair. Um, and, you know, otherwise, you know, the, the, the chair is the one that controls all of the resources of the agency. Uh, the, the commissioners uh, don't. They just have a say in, in, in votes. They can come out with uh, proposals like Commissioner Purse's Safe Harbor or make statements on, on the various proposals on which they vote. Uh, so in order for a proposal like that to actually be implemented, the chair has to get behind it and dedicate the resources of the agency to accomplishing it. And I think it's fair to say that that support wasn't there and it still is not there. Um, so in order for any regulator to you know, undertake something like that, you just need leadership to have that as, as its vision. Um, I think 
a, a different, if not similar path is, is through the legislative process. I mean, I think one of the issues that Commissioner Purse's Safe Harbor proposal is trying to solve for is that networks don't just exist. They, 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 have, to, they have to evolve over time. And you can have something, you know, that starts off that looks somewhat centralized that, you know, can achieve a level of decentralization over time, you know, if it's allowed to, you know, grow and flourish without being constrained uh, by, you know, archaic regulatory rules that were not meant to apply to that kind of innovation. Um, and, and so I think I think some of the legislative uh, proposals you've seen in Congress have tried to get to that issue. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the community has been so focused on the CFTC, uh, for instance, in uh, in gaining spot market authority over um, over the broader crypto space and deeming them as non-security commodities, so that you know those tokens can be freely transferred and traded. With, with appropriate disclosure regimes, with appropriate consumer protections, um, with, with appropriate regulatory oversight over, you know, centralized and, and hopefully decentralized uh, intermediaries uh, and platforms. Um, and so, you know, we'll have to, we just have to see whether or not, you know, those kinds of proposals that allow for safe harbor-like um, uh, contingencies evolve uh, but at this point, it doesn't seem like it's going to come from within a regulator uh, themselves. Carrie, you all have been on the other side of this um, with the ambiguity around whether assets, whether every asset is a de facto security, um, all the way from ETH on down. And um, there's been numerous efforts that, that you all have been involved with, along with others, maybe on this call and, and certainly within the industry, like the Crypto Ratings Council or um, uh, you know, just group efforts essentially to, to, to come up with some type of rubric to at least analyze the risk that an asset is, is deemed to be a security by some future SEC. How, how do you operate in that area of, of uncertainty, that gray area? Um, and what are the steps to the, the, you know, kind of battle in the trenches on uh, assets that, you know, are deemed to be securities or that, you know, the SEC comes out and says, you know, might be securities after they've already been listed, for instance. So, so both the initial decision process, the uh, organization of, of this rubric, not just at Coinbase, but externally as well, and then ultimately the remediation if necessary. You just walk through that. Absolutely. So, you know, we have a, a listing process that anybody can go look at. If you're a, a new project, a developer, you can go online. We have an asset hub and it really walks you through the, the three pillars of how we make a determination to list something. One of those is, of course, legal. And so that's determining whether or not something runs afoul of securities law. One of them is compliance. So um, remember, while, while certainly a consideration of, of whether something is a security, it's also really important that we walk through through these projects and understand if they have AML, that's an anti-money laundering or Bank Secrecy Act compliance um, programs in place, if they know their customer, if they go through the process of making sure that they are compliant with existing U.S. laws. So that's a really big, important piece. Um, also, along with that is making sure that they are not fraud or scams, right? That when we think about consumer protection and what the SEC is designed to do, it's really to think about consumer protection. And we have that in place in terms of kind of our, our, our consumer fraud scan uh, rigorous listing process. The third piece is, of course, cybersecurity and making sure that these assets are safe um, from a cyber perspective. So those three pillars are what give us confidence when we go through a listing process. And again, it takes time, it takes resources on both the side of Coinbase as well as the side of the, the uh, project to make sure that they are, uh, that they fit all three of those buckets. And so, um, again, because of our process, we have confidence that we do not list securities. When the SEC says something is a security, which let's be very clear, has been very limited, uh, we, we want and we hope that the SEC will engage with us. We also think that it's really important that the SEC engage with the public on these different types of assets and helping others decide or understand where the SEC's thinking is headed or where it currently is. And that's really where this has been a black box for years, is understanding how the SEC is viewing these, these different types of assets 
uh, in the framework of their existing concept of what is or is not a security. So that's where I think what's really important as we think about future legislation, future rules. Uh, we just sent a petition over to the that range from issues around what is an asset, what is a digital asset security versus digital asset commodity, what should be the registration requirements, what should be the requirements for issuers or for broker-dealers. We have two broker-dealer licenses at Coinbase, and we would love to work with the SEC in determining how to bring those online. So there are a lot of different questions that we're hopeful that the SEC will consider, and, and a big part of that, right, kind of at that, the center of that big knot is what, or is not, what, or is, what is not a security. We got about ten minutes left, so uh, so Kristen, I want to kick it over to you, and then maybe we'll have one one last lightning round question. Um, when you when you look at the assets that are currently under review, um, whether or not they raised money through, via SAF, so let's talk about the, the live networks themselves. At least in my eyes, you know, stable coins that's probably going to have its own regulatory regime. You know, Bitcoin is probably in a category of its own, and along with the other meme coins like Dogecoin and and, and whatever. Um, and then you've got, you know, NFTs, uh, you know, are the regulators really going to go down, you know, the, the rabbit hole of, of trying to regulate out of existence, you know, PFP projects and, and you know, uh, just digital art? Probably not. Um, you know, the, the layer ones, those are, you know, those are actually being used for a number of different applications. They're kind of general purpose computing platforms. And, and almost you go down the line, you know, by process of elimination, is DeFi going to have ridiculous headwinds the next three to five years or, or where where realistically is the most risk right now in the conversations that you're having yeah no i mean i think that the, the DeFi tokens themselves uh, and the governance tokens um that is sort of a separate issue than the regulation of access to DeFi protocols right um i think i think where where regulators you know kind of coming in from the outside looking in they're like well i can go trade one, one token for another token on Coinbase, or I can do that same thing on Uniswap. So that's the same activity, therefore the same risk, and we need the same regulation. But really, those are, those are very two different processes that one involves having, you know, uh, somebody in the middle who is helping and facilitating and taking custody, and one might not. Um, where the regulators will, will start to come down, though, is like, well, yeah, but not everybody knows how to use some of these sophisticated DeFi protocols. And there are, you know, businesses that pop up to help people interact and that we need to look to those businesses just like we would uh, more centralized uh, kind of traditional intermediaries. And so um, I, I do think there's going to be a lot of discussion, whether it be around, you know, sort of illicit finance and making sure you have, you know, a good, BSA program, sanctions program, and you're, you know, know your customer. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on DeFi protocols there. Um, I think there's going to be pressure for, um, you know, disclosures and consumer protections, just like you would have with exchanges um, or other other types of intermediaries. So, so, so I do think there there is a lot of pressure there. Um, I think, you know, uh, I, th I think there's understanding that you don't want the individual, you know, developer who is, uh, you know, working on something on their laptop writing code. I, th I think there tends to be consensus that you don't want to prevent that kind of activity. But as soon as it starts to look like, hey, there's a website, hey, there's like a core team behind this, I think regulators are more skeptical um, that that additional regulation is needed. So, so yeah, I think, um, you know, it would it would be great for us to be like, oh, there's no custody, therefore we don't need to worry about this. But the reality is regulators aren't looking at it that way and we need to think creatively. And, and I don't think there's consensus within the industry as to how to move forward on that front yet. We're going to save a little something for mainnet. So we're going to get into the last lightning round question here and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But I'll go uh, reverse order, or the, the order that uh, I see people on my screen. So Kristen, Tamika, Brian, and Kara will let you back clean up. Um, one win and one loss to expect over the course of the next 16 months. So through year-round 2023, what's one win and one loss that you think are most likely for the industry? And loss, you know, and win are relatively speaking, but maybe uh, maybe relative to people's expectations or hope on what's going to happen on the policy side, U.S. specific. 
Um, I'm not sure what order you want to go to because um, I don't know if my screen is like yours. But um, listen, I, I do think uh, in the next 18 months, we will get uh, a legislative framework that um, I think is going to be workable and something that we can live with as an industry. And I think it's going to um, be good for innovation. I think it's going to be good for investors wanting to come in. I think it's going to be good for markets. Um, on the loft side, I, I do think we're going to see some enforcement challenges. I don't know if they're going to end up uh, being losses in the long run, but I do think in the next 18 months, there there is going to be um, you know, some additional enforcement actions probably out of the SEC and ones that will provide um, quite a bit of uncertainty until we get those resolved. And just building on that, I would hope in terms of one specific win that we're going to see some clarification of the Howey test. And yeah, as we get clarification of the Howey test, hopefully that will uh, come in a way that makes it a lot easier for builders to build uh, and, and develop great uh, protocols and, and platforms going forward. Uh, on the other side of the equation, uh, just to uh, expand a little bit on Kristen's important point, we are still at a moment when because of the ambiguity that exists among the 15 different regulatory agencies that have a piece of this puzzle, they are all trying to flex uh, as much as they can and prove that they are the entity uh, that should, uh, not all of them, many of them are trying to flex and uh, demonstrate that they are the entity that should be uh, given expanded jurisdiction uh, over the space uh, as Congress starts to uh, develop rules. Uh, and I think that ambiguity, that that moment of uncertainty where all of the regulators are putting up their hands and uh, trying to appear like they are the ones who uh, should be in charge uh, is going to create some challenges and, and likely uh, some losses uh, amid the chaos. But uh, I would assume uh, none of those are going to be losses that can't be addressed with a thoughtful regulatory framework. And I'd agree with Kristen. I, I think things right now seem to be trending in uh, a very encouraging direction. Uh, yeah, so I, I think I'd agree with both uh, to Micah and Kristen on you know their sense of, of, of potential wins and potential losses. Um, I, I do agree. I think an area that is very promising is, is some kind of um, uh, statutory interpretation of what is not a security uh, that clarifies you know, the, the Howey Supreme Court decision, uh, which is not in legislation anywhere and has never, in my view, or at least that I know of, been affirmed you know, by Congress through legislation you know, in statute. And so I think that there is an opportunity, and it looks like it is a, a, a significant possibility that whatever kind of regime comes online, it does take a, a step, if not a big leap towards clarifying that in a way that allows uh, tokens to exist as non-securities that then, you know, um, produces the result of networks that uh, I was speaking about before. Um, I think, I don't want to think about this in terms of a potential loss, but I think something that's very risky is going back to, to Micah's earlier comment around privacy. I think that there is a, a mismatch between um, the idealistic and, in my view, appropriate view of privacy in the community versus the you know legislative, if not, and, and specifically the regulatory view of, of privacy. Aspects of privacy have been winnowed down, you know, through the regulation of third parties, through the regulation of banks, um, to almost be meaningless, and I think regulators are very, um, they covet that, uh, that capability in order to accomplish their statutory missions. So I think that, that issues around privacy are going to be a big fight going forward. And to Tamika's point, I think it's incumbent upon the community to develop you know, proactive, workable solutions that um, preserve and maybe establish or renew uh, the, a, uh, the prior benchmark of expectations around um, financial transactions uh, and personal uh, personal privacy that used to exist, um, but that still allow you know regulators to accomplish what they are statutorily required to. Great, I guess that that leaves me. So 
Um, you know, I think that a lot of good themes have, have come out of this lightning round, particularly, I think, Brian, the, the talk about privacy and thinking about um, decentralized ID and some of those solutions could be a big win when it comes to actually solving some of these regulatory problems with the technology. So I think that that's one area that we can certainly uh, pull on. But I really want to focus really quickly on the regulations that are in existence that are actually um, how we are regulated now with money transmission licenses and at the state activity. I think over the next year, we are going to see both some wins and losses at the state level. I think that there are some states who are engaging, who really want to be thought leaders and want to catch up. I'm from Wyoming, so I have to give a shout out to the Cowboy State who want to catch up with states like Wyoming, um, Texas, Florida, some of the other states who are working really hard. Um, I know with Governor Polis in Colorado, he's really leaning forward. There are some great states out there who are trying to think about how do we make sure that we create an environment for Web3 development. And then we have some states, I think, who will take a step backwards. And that's where I think we really have to make sure that we work with these state regulators who are on the ground every day dealing with the regulations that are on the books right now. And so how do we make sure that we empower them in a way um, that we educate them, we give them the tools they need to understand how to truly think about the development of crypto and Web3. So those are some of the issues I think will just will come up in the next year as we wait for this federal regulatory regime to come into place to to really provide consistent consumer protections across the country. Um, but in the meantime, we're, we're going to work with these states to make it as, as um, welcoming as we can. Thank you, everyone. Uh, really excited for this conversation at Mainnet. Maybe we have time for one more uh, quick question. Um, who's your favorite mean tweeter when it comes to crypto policy? No, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll see everybody on stage. Yeah, Obviously I was going to say, since yeah, Niraj saw, is here, it has to be Niraj. I saw I saw Niraj. I saw John Eaton. I, I've, I see a couple of other mean tweeters. Niraj is probably the most dangerous because it, it, it hurts you the most. Um, but uh, in any case, thank you, everyone, for uh, for, for tuning in. Uh, it's a great discussion. Good good appetizer for the main event and the main course coming up in just a couple of weeks in New York. Mainnet.events, September 21st through 23rd in New York City. It's a great time to be in New York. So uh, hope to see you all there. And thank you again to our speakers today. Thanks, Ryan. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Thanks Ryan. Ryan. Thanks, everyone.